Hey, it's Ted Wynn. Thanks for tuning in today to Perspective with Ted Wynn. Our guest today is Keith Boykin. He's an author, he's an educator, he's an activist. Keith and I will have a very in-depth conversation about the state of our country and our president, Donald Trump. Please tune in, uh, send us your comments. If you have questions about what we discussed, we'd love to hear those. We just in general wanna hear your feedback. Again, thanks for listening. Share, let somebody know that this podcast is available and enjoy the conversation today. I'm delighted, excited today to have um, as my guest, uh, Keith Boykin. Um, a lot of you will know Keith from television. He's an author, um, he's a lawyer, he's an all around just smart guy. Um, and um, I'm not gonna talk because it's about his perspective. I wanna hear <laughs> him talk. And so, what I would like to do though is start um, um, giving people a bit of background about you. I know you're from St. Louis, but can you just tell people briefly um, where you're from, where you went to school, kind of how you got where you are? Ooh, okay. I was born in St. Louis, um, went to high school one year in St. Louis and then went to high school the rest of the time in Florida. Mm. So I went to three different high schools. Um, went to college in New Hampshire, Dartmouth College. Um, left college and worked for the Michael Dukakis for President campaign. That didn't go well, did it? We didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, after that, a uh, wonderful uh, experience, uh, which was a year and a half of my life. Uh, then I was taught school, 8th grade social studies and 10th grade English at a public school in Atlanta, Lithonia High School. Hmm. Uh, and then I... I actually live uh, in Lithonia. Uh, did you really? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, Lith- Lithonia High School. Hmm. And then uh, I went to St. Louis again and did, did some consulting work there. Uh, then I went to law school at Harvard. I uh, graduated from... Well, I was an activist on campus in law school, too. Uh, I went to law school with, president, with Barack Obama, who was not, at the pres- not the president at the time, but he became the first black president of the Harvard Law Review while I was there. Mm. Uh, and um, graduated from college and from law school and then uh, went to work for a law firm. But uh, I, did that. I didn't actually get started. Before I even finished the bar, I got uh, an offer to work for another campaign. So I quit my job and went to work for went to Little Rock, Arkansas to work for the Bill Clinton campaign. And when Clinton was elected, I got a job working in the White House. And I worked in the White House uh, for a few years, and then I left there to write my first book, became executive director of a national black LGBT organization. Mm. Um, left that, started teaching <laughs> at American <laughs> University of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. I've, had, I've had 20 careers, as you can tell. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm hearing. I left uh, teaching and moved to New York, uh, did a reality show in New York uh, called uh, American Candidate on Showtime, mm-hmm. um, became a host of a TV show on BTJ called My Two Cents, mm-hmm. uh, became a CNN, MSNBC, uh, CNBC, and occasionally Fox News uh, commentator. <laughs> um, I started teaching at Columbia University. Uh, and I've just had like a whole bunch of different careers over the years. I don't yeah. know. If people ask me what I do, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think know. that's so important because a lot of times people just see you on television and they're just like, I want to get on TV without realizing all of the work, all of the experience, all of the learning opportunities you've had over your career that, you know, gives you credentials, if you will, to be able to speak um, on some of those topics and to have the kind of insight that I think is necessary to bring an intelligent discourse to 
to TV. Um, so I want to back up a little bit. You said, so how did you get the call to work for the Clinton campaign uh, in Little Rock? Well, I had worked in the Dukakis campaign. I've worked on a lot of campaigns, actually. <laughs> I, started, I started in politics when I was a kid. I was in high school. I worked in my first campaign hmm. back in 1982. Um, and there was a guy, a liberal Democrat in Florida named George Sheldon. He lost. I worked on the Mondale campaign as a volunteer in 1984. He lost. I worked for Julian Bond's campaign in 1986 um, hmm. when he was running against John Lewis in the primary in Atlanta, and he lost. <laughs> I worked, <laughs> worked for Michael Dukakis in 88, and he lost. Mm -hmm. When I was in St. Louis, uh, as, as a consultant, I worked as a license, for a license collector candidate in 1989, and she lost. Uh, so wow. I, I developed a lot of contacts from all those experiences. So is the, is, the, is, the, is the lesson here, like, if you're working on a campaign, vote for the other person? <laughs> Well, I bet on the other person. I, you know, I, I I found a winning campaign when I got the call to work on the Clinton Clinton campaign. That was the first campaign I worked for. Them. No, was this gubernatorial or presidential? Well, Clinton. Yeah, uh, that was this presidential campaign okay. too. Yeah, um, he had already secured the nomination at that point. I, mm. I was brought on to work in the um, in the uh, the general election. Mm. Um, but yeah, in the in the Dukakis campaign, I made so many connections in that, in that campaign. Do you think that for those who don't remember Dukakis, I mean that was a little bit ago. Do you you can look it up on YouTube? I'm sure there are there's yeah. clips. Do you think if he hadn't done the whole scene in the tank, no, he would have won? Do you think no. that you don't think there's that, a lot of issues with that campaign? I mean, I mean, allegedly he was 17 points ahead in the polls in early August of 1988, mm -hmm. ended up losing to George H. W. Bush. Uh, but that was the campaign where they used the the, the, the Republicans really overtly used race, the politics of racial resentment uh, in advertising in a way I've never seen before in a presidential mm. election. I mean, that was the whole Willie Horton campaign that mm -hmm. started that. Uh, and Lee Atwater was uh, Bush's campaign manager, and he was the, the the prince of of dirty partisan politics. He later apologized for that on his deathbed, but you know <laughs> he admitted really? uh, in in that in later interviews he admitted you know what was going on, and he he was actually the one who admitted the Southern strategy that the Republicans deployed. He he said, I don't know if I can use the N word on your on your uh, they can use whatever word you want to use podcast, but sure. um, he he's if you go back there's an article and an audio tape of him where he's recorded saying how the Southern strategy works. Basically, you start out, as he says, in the 50s and 60s saying, nigger, nigger, nigger. Uh -huh. But by the time you get past the civil rights movement, you can't do that anymore. You right. can't say that. So you have to start talking about bustling and things like that. And then you get to the 80s, you start talking about tax cuts. And, mm. you know, and, and after a while, it's so abstract, you're still saying the same thing, reaching the same voters, mm -hmm. but you don't have to communicate with the same vitriol. And it's all about dog whistles. And uh, that was the... the the genius, if you will, the evil genius of the Southern strategy. And Lee Atwater was the master of it. He was there in the 1988 campaign. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I saw him during the campaign. I met Donna Brazil in the 88 campaign. I worked with George Stephanopoulos during the 88 campaign. Wow. And George was actually the one who got me into the, the 92 campaign because uh, he, um, he, it was actually Dee Dee Myers. Mm -hmm. who was the press secretary for Bill Clinton. But she called me up to work in the 92 campaign because we'd worked together in the 88 campaign. And George was the one who hired me to work in the White House after the election. Do you think, look, listening to you talk about dog whistles and this code language that 
was employed at that time, I know that's still happening now, um, or, or a lot of people would, would, would say that's still happening now. Do you think it's different now in the way it's being used um, versus then? And do you think it's as effective? Well, arguably, I think it's reversed now. I mean, that's the whole point that ta Coates makes in his book, that uh, instead of uh, reverting to continued dog whistles, now they're just being really overt about it. Uh, um, Coates makes the argument in the last chapter of his book that, that Donald Trump is the first white president. I don't entirely agree with that. In mm. the same way, I don't agree with the idea that Bill Clinton was the first black president. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I get what they're trying to do with sure. that kind of rhetorical device. And his point was that um, in a way that all the other presidents had to have some kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump was the first president just waltzed into office with no government experience whatsoever. Sure. None. Sure. He was in the military, didn't serve in elected office, had no, not even a state elected office, nothing at all. And they spent time criticizing Obama mm-hmm. uh, in 2008, saying he wasn't qualified because he'd only been a senator for a few years. But he'd also been an elected official uh, in, in, the, in the Illinois legislature. Right. And he'd also been a constitutional scholar. He understood the law. <laughs> he understood government. Right. He, he thought seriously about these issues. Donald Trump didn't understand anything, and he just walked in the office. I mean, he was the antithesis of all the experience that, that other presidents, especially president like Barack Obama had accumulated, mm-hmm. he came in with nine. Well, some, some would argue, um, you know, that that's why people wanted him. That that's why people elected him, because they looked at politics, generally speaking, and said, this is dysfunctional. It's not working. Nothing gets done. You have no. career politicians. No. And so we want somebody who's going to drain the swamp. We want somebody who's going to, you know, shake up the system. Uh, do you think there's any validity to that? I mean, that, that's the argument that, that, that Bernie Sanders supporters are making about his campaign. And there, some people saw some alignment between those two campaigns because they're both disruptors mm-hmm. uh, who were shaking up the system within their with respective parties. Neither one of them was really very loyal to their particular parties, by the way. Bernie Sanders has never been a Democrat. He's he's. He's been an independent and democratic socialist, and he's, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, been a part of the Democratic caucus, but he's never really been a, a member of the party. Uh, and Trump has been all over the place in his own political career, being a Republican and Democrat, depending on whatever way the wind blows. You never know what, where he is on any particular issue. I think he, he believes in the politics of Trump more than anything else. Mm. But I don't think it was about uh, disrupting the system. I don't think it was about draining the swamp. I think it was about ra- white racial resentment. Mm. That's ultimately what this election was about. White people had in Donald Trump a candidate who could articulate their anger, if you will, mm. not only at having a black president for eight years, but of all the other things that they saw black people doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a guy, Donald Trump, who started his, his business career uh, in New York City, uh, in the housing market, being sued by the Nixon administration mm-hmm. for housing discrimination, racial discrimination in housing in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who started his New York City sort of public career, if you will, as a public advocate uh, in 1989 uh, when he took out full-page ads in newspapers in New York City uh, calling for the death penalty again to be brought back to New York City yeah. uh, because of the, the, the rape of the Central Park jogger and mm-hmm. what became the Central Park Five case. Mm-hmm. The five young black Hispanic men who were all later exonerated by DNA evidence right. and the actual 
the actual rapist confessed later, and they found his semen on, on, on that matched the DNA to the to the woman who was raped. Uh, and Donald Trump, even to this day in 2017, still believes that that rapist is is a liar, mm-hmm. and that those five young black and Hispanic boys deserve to be in prison. I mean, then Donald Trump goes beyond that. Uh, and he starts his political career as a presidential campaign by attacking who? Mexicans, saying that they're rapists, they're drug dealers, sure. they're bringing crime. Then he starts his ascendancy in the campaign by attacking who? Muslims, calling mm-hmm. for a travel ban. Mm-hmm. I mean, at every step along the way, Donald Trump has appealed to the politics of racial resentment in order mm-hmm. to advance. Uh, and I, I just don't think how anyone could overlook that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still vote for him. And if you do vote for him, in spite of that, it shows that is also a form of racial racial resentment because you're saying that those concerns are far less important than your vote for for whomever you think it should be. So how would you, because you're using that phrase, and I want people who are listening to understand what you mean, how would you define racial resentment? Well, I mean, there's different ways to describe it, uh, but... I would say that it's the it's the politics of people who are white people in particular who are angry about the the diversity and advancement of other people. Mm. I mean, it's the protection and 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 perpetuation of white supremacy. Mm. Uh, and in order to to perpetuate white supremacy, that means you have to. Uh, it's almost a zero sum game, if you will. I mean, mm-hmm. In a zero sum game, that means if, in order for one person to gain a point, another person must lose a point, and it always has to be a balance. You can't you can't just have a game without another person losing. That's at least the way they perceive it. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of white people feel threatened by the idea that there is a black president. There was a black president. Mm-hmm. They feel threatened by the idea there was a, a woman who was a nominee for president to succeed him. Mm-hmm. They feel threatened by the idea there was mar- there is now marriage equality in all 50 states in the United States. Mm-hmm. They feel threatened by the idea there are billionaires uh, out there who are African-American, who are successful, and people who are media moguls, and people like Oprah and others who are on television, people who they see who have power and stature. Well, a lot of white people don't feel like they have that. Now, never mind, the entire white social structure is mm-hmm. designed to help uh, perpetuate their benefit, to sure. their benefit. Uh, and even the wealthiest whites, uh, wealthiest blacks, rather, don't, don't live as well or have the same opportunities that the wealthiest whites do, mm-hmm. in large part because the, of the existence of racism, which affects people of all different classes. Mm-hmm. So it's this resentment that, that carries on. Um, you know, it, I can go on and on about, about that issue too, but, <laughs> but I, I think there's, a, there's another interesting point. I tweeted about this recently mm-hmm. uh, from another book that I read in, we read in my class mm-hmm. uh, from Paul Butler, Choco. And tell what class is that? I, I teach a class at Columbia uh, called Race, Racism in American Politics from Obama to Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very timely seminar right sure. now. Uh, but uh, we're, we've read a lot of different books, of current books about what's going on in race, racial issues in the country. But this, I, I love this book that Paul Butler uh, wrote mm-hmm. called Choco. It's yeah, about it. policing black men. And there's a part of the book where he talks about uh, this, this, this whole notion that a lot of progressives are very 
confused and baffled by why poor white people vote for somebody like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, Donald Trump is this, is this rich guy, lives in New York City. <laughs> right. he, has, he has no concern about poor people whatsoever. Right. Everybody who's seen him for New York, in New York for decades, we all know that. He only sure. cares about himself and his money and his family. Right. But suddenly he's the, the standard bearer, the defender and the protector of all these poor white people in, in West Virginia and Alabama. <laughs> right. And they buy it. They believe it. Sure. And so for those of us who are progressive and people who were wondering, like, how come these white people don't see they're being bamboozled? These tax cuts for the corporations and the wealthy, they don't benefit these these poor white people. Sure. Um, and the reality, I think that... that, that um, that, that, that's a very convincing reality that Paul Butler argues in his book is that the white people are actually making a rational economic decision. That, in other words, this perpetuation of white supremacy actually mm-hmm. benefits them. Mm-hmm. There is a property. They're they're investing in in their in the property value of whiteness, if you mm. will, uh, by voting for uh, a white racist candidate. Uh, and Butler makes the point that uh, for all the, the perpetuation of white supremacy, what what white people get is they get more black people locked up in jails, uh, mm-hmm. which means that there's less competition for jobs for poor white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's fewer people who they have to worry about and competing against to get out. Uh, a home mm-hmm. or access to quality education. Mm-hmm. The, the, the social structure is designed sure. to benefit them, even the poorest sure. white, vis-a-vis the poorest blacks. Mm-hmm. So that serves as some sort of economic stimulus, if you will, for poor white people. By voting for a conservative Republican rich guy mm-hmm. who has no interest with you whatsoever, you're still voting to perpetuate the status quo that keeps black people in their place. Yeah, I, I completely get that. And I think that there is a point of connectivity between them. View, you know, Regardless of class, there is still the connection of race and white supremacy. And so there is that point where they still see themselves in a Donald Trump or see that they have a commonality with Trump in terms of how you perpetuate these ideas of whiteness that have been um, ways in which they've benefited over people who were non-whites. Um, do you think, looking at looking at kind of where we are in terms of race relations, this has been said by a lot of people, and I don't necessarily agree, but I want to get your take on it. People have said, you know, the country is so divided now, and it's, you know, really bad, and things are getting worse, and people are, you know, becoming more um, tribal and what have you. Do you think that we are seeing uh, some type of progression um, or regression as it relates to issues of race and division, or do you think we're just seeing the light shined on what has been? I don't think it's ever changed. There's this mythology that somehow we were a post-racial society because uh, we elected a black president. Mm-hmm. People forget uh, Obama suffered through eight years of, of hell uh, right. in terms of the way he was treated by white America. Mm-hmm. And they also forget that white America didn't vote for him. I and, always say that people don't realize that and, the majority of white people did not vote exactly. for him either time. In either election, the majority of white people did not vote for Barack Obama. Right, it's true. Uh, and so when people were upset and shocked that white women, that fifty-three percent of white women voted for Donald Trump, the pussy grabber, mm-hmm. um, 
It's not surprising at all, considering white people have always been voting. White males and females have always been voting for Republican candidates for decades. Now. Right. That was the part of the Southern strategy. When when Lyndon Johnson signed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he reportedly told uh, White House staffer Bill Moyers that by doing so, he had uh, turned over the South to the Republican Party for a next generation. In other words, the, the, Republican, the Republicans had been locked out of the South for most of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. The, the South was a Democratic stronghold. Right. Lyndon Johnson was a Southerner himself from Texas. Uh, and after signing the Civil Rights Act, the South never voted Democrat again. Mm. That is so interesting. That's profound, actually, Yeah. when you think about that, that transition. Um, I wanted to, you, you mentioned earlier um, the campaigns you've worked for and what have you. We're having a situation right now in the country. Um, I'll just use the word situation <laughs> um, as opposed to crisis or awakening um, as it relates to sexual assault. Mm. Um, most, most especially of women. Um, I am one who believes and have believed that women have been subjugated, objectified, marginalized since the beginning of time. Yeah. Um, even through a religious lens, like even if you look at Christianity, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of chauvinism. Yeah. Women are lesser, they're weaker, they're all these ideas that I don't necessarily believe are true. Um, do you think that, well, well, one is, why do you think this is happening now? I don't know if I have the expertise to be able to answer why it's happening at this moment, mm-hmm. but I suspect the reason why anything happens um, that creates a sense of uh, media interest and possible change is because we reach a critical mass. Mm-hmm. Um, I think last year's election could have been that point because we elected the guy who was an accused sexual predator and admitted mm-hmm. sexual predator, if you believe what he said in his Access Hollywood tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and even after the allegations of 15, now it may be, I think, as many as 20 women mm-hmm. uh, who've accused Donald Trump, uh, he still remains in office as president. And um, that's troubling for a lot of people because sure. he's, he hasn't behaved in a presidential way and he hasn't done anything to sort of change the tone of his behavior since he was elected. At the same time, we start hearing these other stories about Harvey Weinstein, about Al Franken, about Roy Moore, about um, people. Bill O'Reilly. Who, Bill O'Reilly is probably the, the Bill O'Reilly is probably not not the 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 worst example, but the most notorious example. Mm-hmm. Why do you uh, say that? Well, because it happened in a, in a place at Fox News where there is a culture apparently mm-hmm. of. Uh, of sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were paying out money left and right, not just for O'Reilly, uh, but Roger for Roger Ailes. Yeah. And it just felt like, how did this continue for so long? And then you think about what the the messages are that they communicate on Fox News, and it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it couldn't have happened anywhere else. I mean, Mark Halperin was working at ABC News when he was engaged sure. in sexual misconduct. So um, I, I just think that this is this is not a Democrat or Republican problem. This is not a liberal or conservative problem. This is an American problem. Sure. Sexism, patriarchy, misogyny are as old as uh, older than the Bible, <laughs> old, as, o- older than our country for sure. Sure. Um, 
And, you know, it, what's, what's shocking to me is that women are the majority of the population and we've never had a woman president. And I, 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 there's a line in uh, the in the TV show Blackish, uh, I think it was Blackish, where somebody said that um, if 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 uh, no, it wasn't Blackish. I don't know. I don't want to misquote this, but sure. but some somewhere on TV or somebody said if if uh, no, I know it was it was um, Chris Rock mm-hmm. on Saturday Night Live. He said that if black people were the majority of the population, we would have black presidents for days and days and days. He said Flavor Flav would be a president. You know, I, just, I don't understand the idea that women are the majority of the population and we have never had a woman president. I don't find that shocking, though. It's not shocking, but it's, it's disturbing. I mean, it's not sure. shocking because I know that there's a great deal of internalized prejudice that takes place in yeah. all communities. Black people are internally internally prejudiced against themselves, LGBT mm-hmm. people against themselves, mm-hmm. women against themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of the patriarchy, the white patriarchy predominantly in our society, mm-hmm. we tend to defer to what what men say. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think and, and married you, women especially. But if just look at so. the makeup of Congress, which I always highlight. Yeah. Right? I want to say it's 80 or so percent male. Um, and... and probably about the same percent white uh, very close to it yeah. um, and so when you look at that that's not a representative government in terms of what no. the country looks like no, no. and so it's not you know I don't even know that you can really be sympathetic or empathetic to what people are dealing with if you are not someone who has lived those experiences and so I do think that to your point that the ways in which we've been acculturated and how we think about things and how we are socialized and conditioned does speak to why we have not had a woman as president yeah. of the United States, um, which again, you know, going back to this this topic of sexual assault and abuse, um, I'm seeing. So you see, I, I know that Al Franken um, had you know allegations that came out, and um, there was a photo, and he apologized kinda once, and then he wrote a more deeply felt apology after the fact, um, and I heard. Um, uh, um, one of your, I guess I can call him a co-worker, <laughs> uh, Bukhari Sellers said something very strong. It was really strong language. And he said, I feel like Al Franken should you know, not be a senator. Um, I feel like um, if, if that's what we're going to say of Roy Moore, if that's what we're going to say of, you know, if O'Reilly's going to lose his job, if Roger Ailes lost his job, if, you know, we can go down the list of persons who've lost their jobs, then what does that mean for um, you know, and Al Franken, and, and and quite candidly, what does that even mean for how we have conversations around a Bill Clinton? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think the, the world has changed a lot since the Bill Clinton era, um, and there were definitely allegations against Bill Clinton. Uh, most of them were about adultery and philandering, not so much about sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Starr, who was in the independent counsel or special counsel of the day, uh, investigated claims against uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, from, I think, Juanita Broderick and mm-hmm. um, Kathleen Willey and Paula Jones. Um, and I don't think that he found that any of those claims were particularly credible at that time, but I don't know how thorough that investigation was. Mm-hmm. And I know there was a settlement paid, I think, in the case of Paula Jones. I may be missing, uh, confusing cases. Sure. Um, but, I mean, at that time, I think in the 1990s, the world was a different place, and I don't know that Bill Clinton would be able to survive to that. I mean, mm-hmm. there, was, there was sort of a wink and a nod bargain that the, the Democratic Party made with Bill Clinton. The base the party made, the progressives, women made, I think, as well with, with Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. We all knew that he had issues. Sure. Um, we all knew that he had not been faithful. 
Mm-hmm. And I think he admitted as much even before he he ran he started running. But the assumption was that once you get elected, you will not do this again. You <laughs> right. won't embarrass us again. Right, right, right. And the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, uh, when that blew up in uh, 1998, just really uh, it threw a whole monkey wrench in. in I think it, it, it could have been unintentionally the most destructive element to the Democratic Party uh, over the past two decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I say that uh, sort of going on a limb because people don't think of it that way. And mm-hmm. he survived, he was impeached, but they didn't vote him out of office. Sure. He ended up being even more popular after the impeachment because people felt that Republicans overreached. But but what happened, though, after the, the, the Lewinsky affair is that Al Gore didn't know how to run in 2000. He didn't know whether he should be close to Clinton or distance himself from right. Clinton. And Clinton was still popular, but sure. Gore, I think, felt personally offended by his behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Gore ended up losing a very close election. He lost by 537 votes in the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh but he potentially could have won if Bill Clinton had not been a liability for mm-hmm. him to sort of negotiate throughout the campaign. Mm. And just think of how the world would be different if we hadn't had a George W. Bush, yeah. if we didn't have a Hurricane Katrina debacle, if we didn't have a war in Iraq and a war in Afghanistan. Possibly we might not even have a September 11th if, if Al Gore had, had read the, the memo on August 6, 2001 that George Bush apparently ignored that mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden was determined to strike in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, the, just, you know, it's counter-historical to sort of to, to imagine all these things. Sure. But this is this is how the world could have evolved. Imagine then you get a Hillary Clinton who runs in 2008 or 2016 or whatever or whatever she decides to run, and she doesn't have the Bill Clinton baggage attached to her. Then mm-hmm. she's probably more likely to to be successful. Sure. So Bill Clinton's um, issues, if you will. Mm-hmm. Had an enormous impact, enormously negative impact on the future of the Democratic Party. There was a compromise the Democrats made for a particular period in the 1990s just to get in power. Mm-hmm. Remember, Democrats had lost five of the last six of the previous six elections mm-hmm. uh, before Clinton came in office. Right. And so they just wanted to get in power. And <laughs> they did. By any means necessary. By any means necessary. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's true. And I, I think as you, you know, as we're talking, I'm thinking about. Uh, that era of time and what that meant and how it did inform kind of where we are now, all the changes that we've gone through as a country. Um, I think about the ways in which those stories are told uh, as, I, as I turn a corner here. And you, we talked about earlier that you've worked at, you know, you've done BET, you've done CNBC, you've done uh, obviously CNN currently, MSNBC, um, uh, a little bit on Fox. In terms of like cable television and like the news cycle, 24-hour news cycle, since you've been in those spaces, um, how do you think that is impacting or has impacted how people um, think about current events and politics and kind of what's happening in the world? How does what impact that? Like the, the 24-hour news cycle. like You know, like I remember as a kid, yeah. like the Walter Cronkite of the world. Yeah. And so that's very, it's a very different era of time. Um, and I think, I feel like media at that point was much more objective right. than it is now. Um, well, see, I don't know. I think this, this question actually was, was more applicable maybe a decade ago than it is now. 
uh, before we had so much social media? Because I think social media has taken mm-hmm. over the role of the 24-hour cable net- networks. Um, that's the reason why the Russians didn't go to fa- didn't go to uh, CNN and MSNBC and right. Fox News. They went to Facebook mm-hmm. and Twitter to mm-hmm. try to, to, in- to interfere with the election because they knew that's where people were getting their information these mm-hmm. days. Um, and uh, and, the, and you don't have as many gatekeepers that way too. So it's easier to do so. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think the danger here is that everybody is in their own sort of silos and they they are getting information in their own communities and not hearing information from outside those communities. Um, and there's no sort of universal truth anymore to the extent that there ever was, I suppose. But there's no sort of, there's no Walter Cronkite, people say. You know, right. there's, there's no, but nobody that people can re- turn on the television every night and rely on this person to give us uh, what was supposed to be a fair and unbiased perspective of the news. Now, it was never fair and unbiased any time in the past, to be honest. Sure. But at least there was some sort of common thread, some common sense, mm-hmm. uh, sense of agreement about what is what. Mm-hmm. Now we don't have that. I mean, there's some value to that because a lot of what we've been fed in the past was baloney. Sure. That's how we got into Vietnam and Watergate because we were just listening to the government lie and weren't challenging it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now a lot of what we have is baloney too. It's just there's so much more of it. It's hard to figure out how, where the, where's Where's the good stuff and what's the bad stuff? And I, I, I believe in the, the right and the ability of the people and the consumers to make up their minds and have access to as much information as possible. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not necessarily convinced that people will do so mm-hmm. or that they have the time to do so or even the capacity to be able to interpret all the information that's coming to them. It's the reason why we don't have a direct, direct democracy. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much information that I, I, I always use the example of TPP. Mm-hmm. The t- Trans-Pacific, P- Trans-Pacific Partnership mm-hmm. that, that Barack Obama negotiated, and um, it never became it never became a treaty uh, because Clinton was Hillary Clinton was opposed to it, and then uh, Trump was opposed to it, and Bernie everybody's been opposed to it. Right. And I remember there's a big, huge issue about the TPP at the Democratic Convention in 2016 in Philadelphia, and every time Hillary or one of her supporters got anywhere near a stage. All these young people started chanting about no TPP, and they had all these signs and placards and stuff. And I was like, what the hell is a TPP? Does anybody even know what the TPP is? I'm a relatively intelligent, informed person. I've read a lot of articles about it, but I have no idea what it is. I know it's a 5,000-page agreement. I bet you nobody, and nobody on television, with the possible exception of Bernie Sanders, has ever read the damn thing, right. has any idea what's in, in the thing. Right. Uh, and so I, I just think, how do people process all this information? That's out there. There's so much information that's coming so to you. much. I don't know that we have the capacity to do that. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, and I do think that that's, and maybe that is why people are, um, you know, tribal in that way. That's why they look at whatever network fits their personal narrative, because now you do have the opportunity to do that, whether that be traditional media or social media. You can just kind of listen to whatever it is. If it's not kind of what you want to hear, then you can say, oh, I don't really want to hear this. I'll go listen to somebody who's saying what I think. Um, the reality is. Um, speaking of that, the, the current administration has um, pundits and spokespersons who, you know, day after day, night after night, get on TV huh. and social media and defend um, uh, Trump and his administration, his decisions, his the things that he says, the lies that he tells, um, you know, over and over again. Um what do you do you think that well let me ask the, this this question i'll start with 
the current um, press secretary. Um, she's the daughter of Mike Huckabee, right? Who is um, a self-avowed Christian man. Um, He's also a politician, former governor of Arkansas. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, those things should be mutually exclusive, right? If if you if you say you're a Christian, this, these are the values you mm-hmm. embrace. So I'm listening to her. You know, get on television day after day and do her job and defend the president, even if that means that she's defending a lie or something that's just, you know, ridiculous or offensive or absurd. And I'm not really sure how she reconciles that within herself. And so my question to you is, when you see these defenders of Trump, as I call them, how do you think they're processing what they are doing? I don't know. I think it must be about power, you know, because Kellyanne Conway was the one who famously coined the term alternative facts earlier during the, uh, the Trump administration. I, I mean, there's facts and there's alternative facts. No, there's just facts. You know, it's, it's like the old thing. You're, 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 everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their, to their own facts. The mm-hmm. facts are the facts. Uh, the, the inauguration was not the biggest inauguration in history. Right. But Sean Spicer went out there at Donald Trump's orders uh, the day of the inauguration, the day after, insisting that it was. Right. And we're not stupid. We can see. We can compare the photos. Uh, and so we had this whole s- silly debate for an entire week or two at the beginning of his administration. The one point when people are supposed to be most supportive, we're debating something that is transparently false that the White House is claiming. But not not only is it transparently false, it's so insignificant and, and completely it's a, petty. It's a crowd it's completely size. petty. Like, but really? But, but that's who Donald Trump is. He's completely petty. He doesn't like any possible insult go unanswered. But that's my point. So that I mean, that's really what I'm trying to drill down, drill down on. You have a Sean Spicer. You have uh, Sarah Sanders. Like, I mean, these are not. These are smart people. But, they right. have, but they've all made a compromise. In order to work for Donald Trump, you have to compromise your integrity and your values. You have mm-hmm. to believe that whatever he says, you're willing to be able to go out and defend. Even if you know it's wrong or, or inaccurate or what have you. Apparently so. I mean... To what end? I mean, to keep your job uh, because you believe in the ultimate goal of what he's, he's saying. I mean, Donald mm-hmm. Trump is... is is not just a narcissist, but I think he's delusional. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of my favorite authors is Marianne Williamson. Oh, no, that's, she's not the one I want to talk about. Abraham Hicks is another author. But they, I kind of, kind of get them confused because they both do the spiritual writings and such. Mm-hmm. But Abraham Hicks, um, her real name's Esther Hicks, but she goes by Abraham. Um, she has written and talked a lot about Donald Trump. Um, even before Donald Trump was a presidential candidate, for years and years ago, she talked about him in a very positive way uh, in terms of the law of attraction. The law of attraction being this idea that we create our own reality based on our thoughts. Sure. And she uses him as a, as sort of the archetypal example of being able to do this. Um, just to think that this is the biggest housing, 
building project that's ever been built in New York City, or I'm, I'm the best real estate developer in the history of the world, or mm -hmm. I'm the richest billionaire, I'm the best, I have the best TV show, I have the, the, the most successful reality show, I have the highest ratings. Everything is a superlative of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Everything has to be the best, or if he doesn't like it, it has to be the worst. So mm -hmm. Obama then is the worst president in history, and Trump is the best president in history. There is no gray area with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That's a, the delusion that is Donald Trump. I don't know if he believes it or not, but he's convinced himself enough to say it, at least. Mm -hmm. And I think that in order to work for Donald Trump, work for him in any capacity, or to be a surrogate for him, you have to be uh, a part of that tribe. You have to be willing to go along with it. You have to, you have to, to drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And apparently that's what they've chosen to do. What's the alternative? I mean, I, I heard, um, you know, Charles Blow say something along the lines of if you, you know, support Donald Trump, then you also support the bigotry, you know, the sexism, the racism, all these things that he perpetuates. And I guess I'm still, and obviously this is rhetorical in a sense, you know, how these, you know, quote unquote, smart people, these sensible people would defend and support and perpetuate someone who has these ideas. I guess I don't really understand how they do that and live with themselves. Like, because I guess I don't really understand what the end goal is. Because history will remember that they were supportive of this president and the things that he's done, the things that he's said, the policies he's put forward. I mean, I mean, just to kind of juvenile things that he does like calling people names it's he called the the leader of north korea short and fat this is a person with nuclear weapons yeah i mean it's 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 mind-boggling uh think about what the white house did in in observance of the holocaust um they put out a statement they didn't mention jews yeah not only that when White supremacists marched in Charlottesville in August, mm. chanting, Jews will not replace us. The President of the United States refused to condemn them, saying that they were good people on both sides. Mm -hmm. The President of the United States has a daughter who is converted to Judaism sure. and a son-in-law who is a Jew. Right. How do you reconcile that? I mean, how do they reconcile that? How does Ivanka Trump reconcile the fact that her... her her father was on tape talking about grabbing women by the pussy. Yeah. And he moved on him. He said he moved on her like a bitch, referring to a married woman. He made it. He made a move on. Yeah. Um, while he was married. While he was married, too. Yeah. Uh, how do you reconcile any of that? I mean, and they apparently all love him and think he's a wonderful person. I mean, the same way, I suppose that. Uh, I can understand for the family, I suppose, in the, in the way that you, you, you always see the stories on television of a, a person who's uh, been convicted of murder or something like that. And yeah. the mother is still going to support him. He didn't yeah. do it no right. matter what. He had the gun in his hand. He right. confessed the DNA evidence, but she still claims he's a saint and he's an angel. Right. But, you know, I guess that's the kind of delusion that you have to live in uh, to be in Donald Trump world. Yeah, I think people create, can create their own realities, and I think they do that in large part. People who work for him. I just... I don't really have any expectation of Donald Trump, and I've said this, you know, before. I feel like Donald Trump has had seven decades to become who he is, and he's not going to change. Um, but I am honestly disappointed by the people who support him. And even if you have, you know, 
political, varying political ideas and views. I understand those. I respect those. I think there's a place for that. There are spaces for debate and conversation and exchange of ideas. But when a man is, you know, when, when people are railing against, um, you know, Obama for not wearing a flag on this lapel, you know, I mean, they're making a huge deal of it, but they're silent when Trump comes out with this, with this, when this tape comes out about Trump, when he's calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, when he's calling Marco Rubio Little Marco, when he's, you know, when he's, when he gives out Lindsey Graham's phone number on national television. I mean, it's the most juvenile. But when behavior. he says that John McCain is not a war hero because he was he captured. Caught. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump is also supportive of or has been alternatively pro and con on the issue of the Confederate flag and mm. Confederate memorials, uh, which I, it strikes me as odd because he, his whole campaign slogan, his biggest slogan is make America great again. Right. And again, you mentioned the whole con con whole contrast with Obama about the flag pin mm -hmm. and not having a lapel pin to with the United States flag. Mm -hmm. What could be more anti-patriotic than the Confederate flag or Confederate mm -hmm. memorials? These are people who took up Maybe arms. Maybe Russia meddling. <laughs> Russia <Russian> meddling. <laughs> well, at least Russia didn't have a fight a war against the United States that cost 600,000 American lives. Sure. The Civil War cost 600,000 American lives mm. because traitors, yeah. racist, treasonous traitors, took up arms against the United States of America. Mm -hmm. That should not be celebrated. That should be condemned. No president should be endorsing the Confederate flag as a memorial, as a, as a symbol of, of Southern heritage or anything else. Mm. So you, are you supportive of, what's your position on monuments of Confederate? I'm opposed to any Confederate monument in a public space. I think that they should be taken down. Mm. Why is that? Well, I mean, for two reasons. I mean, there's a there's a there's a American patriotic reason. There's a uh, an identity racial reason. As an American, mm -hmm. I feel it's 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 a it's a violation of the spirit of what America represents. Mm -hmm. These are people who who's, who took up arms against the United States of America. If you go to Germany, I know they don't have the same First Amendment rights that we have in our country. Mm -hmm. If you go to Germany, you don't see Nazi swastikas and symbols all over the all over the country. Right. In fact, if you even make a Nazi uh, salute. And um, in Germany, they'll arrest you for that. Mm. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Here we let people, Klansmen with hoods, parade around in, in the streets in, in, in Skokie, Illinois, with Jewish communities, or not, Nazis, rather, in, in Jewish communities, and, and Klansmen in black communities like Atlanta. Yeah. Um, we have to, at some point, have a reconciliation with our country's original sin. Mm. Our country was built on racism. The country wouldn't exist to the extent that it does without racism. America, I don't like using the word third world country because mm -hmm. people find that offensive, but America would be one of those quote unquote third world countries if it were not for black and brown people. Mm -hmm. So do you think, uh, I, I do this um, this segment as we, as we wrap um, called No Romance, right? And so effectively this segment is I mean, all of it is honest dialogue, <laughs> but this is the straight no chaser, um, you know, segment that I that I always do, and I ask each guest to give me their perspective, um, given that title on a particular thing. And so I do want to ask you, um, when you think about the ideas of or the idea of um, racism in racism racism in America and the way that it is. Um, been incorporated in institutions. 
Um, what do you think? I, I know this is maybe a multi-pronged, you know, approach. But what is something you feel like that needs to happen in order to deconstruct the systemic um, institutional racism that is a part of this country? Mm. Well. Um yeah, I mean, one of my law professors in, in uh, law school, Derek Bell, um, believed in what people call the permanence of racism. Uh, and he, he put out a theory called the interest convergence theory, that white people will only change when their interests converge. They won't do it out of the goodness of their heart. They'll do it when mm -hmm. they have some reason to do it. We saw this in Atlanta uh, back in the 70s when uh, suddenly black people started, late 70s, black people started getting jobs and economic opportunities because they, white businesses realized that the black mayors weren't going to uh, uh, give them any contracts anymore unless they, <laughs> unless they had black people involved. Right. You know? So suddenly it's like, oh yeah, we're going to be open-minded and we're going to be more progressive in the way we hire people. We're mm -hmm. going to promote more people because they were forced to do it. Right. Their interests finally converged where they had to do it. And, and I, I feel the same thing is true uh, today. I don't think anything has changed about that. Frederick Douglass says power never concedes anything without a demand. Mm -hmm. I don't think white people were willing to give up their, their supremacy or their patriarchy or their privilege uh, at any point soon. Uh, and in order to disrupt that, uh, there has to be some sort of radical revolution. We have to, I think we have to go start from scratch. Mm. Our country has a... You know, we had a big issue here in, in New York State recently about a constitutional convention, whether we should have a constitutional convention to rewrite a constitution. It ended up being a big question mark, and I voted no. A lot of people voted no because it was it was it was the lobbyists were going to come in and take over. It was a fear. Mm -hmm. But this country could benefit from a rewriting of our constitution. Mm. Uh, the constitution was written two hundred and something years ago. It's clearly not as as. Developed as it is, it's clearly not sophisticated enough to be able to withstand the the current crisis that we have. There are issues that that no person in the 18th century could have anticipated would take place in the 21st century. Mm. Ne the, the founding fathers did never anticipated a Donald Trump. Mm. They never anticipated not only a Donald Trump but a compliant Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why we have the impeachment powers in the in the in the Constitution is so that Congress can actually exercise them. But these are not self-enforcing powers. Mm -hmm. It has to be the reason why we have a separation of powers and checks and balances because one branch of power checks the other. Sure. But what if that doesn't happen? Mm. What if this is one of the reasons why Washington and others were very concerned about party loyalty, but about having political parties in the first place, because uh, they felt that that might overwhelm their interest in the institution that they represented. Mm. So if the government isn't doing its job and nobody's checking the, the, the chief executive, the president, I don't understand how we can continue having this situation occur if we don't make some radical change. I don't understand how we continue having a system in, in our country where two times in my lifetime we have a president who's elected who, who loses the popular vote. Yeah. I don't understand how we can have a system where, because the Second Amendment said that people could have muskets back in, this, in the 1700s, <laughs> that that means that people can have assault rifles with bump stocks on them that can shoot 600 people in Las Vegas in one, in one, in one, sec, in one session. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. not what the framers intended. No, it's not. So you think one of the things that should happen is we should look at rewriting the Constitution? 
I don't think that's the solution uh, by itself, but okay. I but I think that that is uh, the type of radical change that we're going to have. We're going to have to start being much more radical about what we do. Mm. Um, I think we've been very incremental about the change. You know, uh, one of the books we read in my class is a book from Carol Anderson. She talks about white rage, and her argument is that every time black people have made progress, white people have responded to that in some sort of way to prevent that progress. Sure. Uh, and I think what whatever black people do to advance, whatever sort of piecemeal incremental approach we, we take, is going to be some sort of response to that. Mm. We have to have a, a whole-scale reawakening. Uh, you know, we, we have to look at all those ideas that people thought weren't reasonable. Mm. Ideas like reparation, you know, which Ta-Nehisi Coates has argued for. Sure. Ideas like prison abolition, which is something I thought was kind of far-fetched for a while. But, but you know, Paul Butler makes a very convincing argument for that uh, in his book. And, and I'm not saying, I don't think he would even say that you, you let go of all murderers and, mm-hmm. and, and extremely violent people from the prisons. But we have a lot of people who were in prison today who are nonviolent. And why are we putting them in prisons? Why can't we do something else to, to have some other form of, of incarceration or, or not incarceration, but some, some form of treatment, rehabilitation that's really effective and more cost effective mm-hmm. as well? Uh, why, are we, why do we have more people in prison than any other country in the world? We're five, less than 5% of the world's population. Right. Well, 25% of the world's prison population. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, don't, I mean, I think there are really, you know, this is, this is like really digging down. I think there are a couple of things, though. I think that, you know, the way the country, you know, was developed and grew, I think those are really important, those foundational elements, because that's in the fabric, that's in the DNA of this country. Um, and it's not a very old country comparatively. Right. Um, but when you think about that and how the Judeo-Christian ideas also informed what we saw or a variation of those things that at one point um, thought that slavery was okay and right. the subjugation of you know any other people group that weren't white men. Um, I do think that that those ideas that you that you talked about are important, um, radical, uh, progressive, but necessary in order for us to see some type of really definitive, measurable change. Because I mean. If not, we're just going to keep having this conversation over and, and the over. next generation and the next generation and the next generation. They'll just have it forever and ever. Um, yeah. The Declaration of Independence, you know, everybody knows the line that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Mm-hmm. But what they forget is what comes after that, you know, not among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Mm. This is the Declaration of Independence. It's saying not only for this country, but for any government, the right of the people, whenever government no longer serves the interests of the people, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Mm. It is their right, it is their duty, the Declaration says. Sure. And and what what do you feel like that looks like? Well, I mean, I, I don't know that I can visualize what that is, and I think that that may be a responsibility that falls on not just my shoulders, but the shoulders of the of the generations to come. Mm. But we have a, a country where white people will no longer be the majority as of 2044. Mm-hmm. Or even today, a child that's born in the hospital anywhere in the country is more likely to be black or brown than white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these demographics are scaring a lot of white people. Uh, and I think they're scared in part because they're afraid that they're going to tr- be treated the way they treated black and brown people <laughs> for the past few hundred years. 
But I, I think that we can't just continue to change things around the edges. You know, I love Barack Obama. I thought he was a wonderful president for the time, but, but I don't think that he was a revolutionary president. And he was ne- no, I don't know that any president ever has been, to be honest. But people but, thought he would be. Yeah, you know, they're, 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 I, I, I don't understand why, because he didn't... I don't, there's, there's an article I remember reading back in, in 2000-something, 2008, from a law professor named Drew Western. And he made this argument, I think it was the best explanation of the conundrum of Barack Obama's presidency. And he said that Obama was elected on two conflicting, two paradoxical or conflicting themes. One was that he was going to be a reformer, and the other was that he was going to be a, a unifier. And you can't do both. Hmm. And Obama, I think, chose chose the path of being a unifier for the mm-hmm. most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, he instituted some reforms, but he was more of a unifier. He tried mm-hmm. to bring people together. He didn't succeed because there were there was so much partisanship and division. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we he, he's a he's been a fundamental believer. Even to the extent when Donald Trump was elected, you know, he was still saying that he believed that that the the presidency was going to change him. I don't believe it. I mean, I, I go back to what what Michelle Obama said in the 2012 convention, and I think she might have said it in 28 in 2008 as well. She said, "Being president doesn't change who you are; it 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 still reveals who you are." Agreed. But that's my. I mean, I think <laughs> to that point, do you really think? that Barack Hussein Obama really believes that. Hmm. It's, it's challenging. Well, let me, and let, me say, let me give you like a precursor. Hmm. It's challenging for me to believe that someone who's that intelligent, who is that well-versed, who's that um, you know, brilliant of a critical thinker, well, all of the empirical data that exists would think that we are more united than we are divided. That we are in a place where, um, you know, America is this really great nation and, you know, all the very flowery, poetic things that he said. And I'm not saying that he should be, you know, been a, should have been a gloom and doom president. But I don't know. I mean, if, if you had, I won't say you, if an individual went to the doctor and the doctor took their blood and realized that the person was diabetic, right, through a series of tests and said, well, you have a problem, but everything's just going to be okay, right? Continue doing what you're doing because there's no real radical change or transition that you're going to make, and you're going to be okay. Well, that person is going to eventually die or have a diabetic coma or something's going to happen. Not until we have, you know, why, why I call this segment No Romance, real, honest dialogue about whatever it is we're talking about, can people get better? Now, are there... You know, smooth ways to say things that are not as, you know, whatever, harsh, if you will. I'm sure there are. I mean, he's a man of, you know, many words to Harvard, you know. But does it do us good? It's the question. Does it really do us good as a country to romanticize where we are and expect that we're going to change? Well, I mean, I can't get into. President Obama's head to know what he was thinking. Uh, But my sense is that at at his core, he probably did believe it uh, for three reasons. One, you have to consider his family background. 
I mean, he grew up with a white mother and his white grandparents helped to raise him. Mm -hmm. um, and so he had this black identity through his father from Kenya, but he still had this white American upbringing that I think that mixed background had to have an impact in the way he sees the world and the way that may be different from the way that you or I see the world. Secondly, the fact that he was elected at all as a black man and in a country where <laughs> nobody thought it was going to be possible. Right. It reminds you of what Michelle Obama said for the first time in my life, I feel proud to be an American. Right. Um, I think that had to give him some sense of hope about the country, that uh, optimism that, that may not seem warranted today, looking back in hindsight in 2017, but mm. had to give him some sort of inspiration back in, in 2008. Mm. And thirdly, I think there's the performative aspect of the presidency that has to be considered. In order for anybody to be president, you have to, with the exception now we're seeing Donald Trump, you have to convince the American people that the country is worth defending, that the country is something to believe in, that the country is good. Even though many of us who were progressives would question some of those, those notions, uh, the reality is that's the duty, that's the job that we expect of the American president. Why isn't the job, though, to say that these ideals are worth fighting for? Like, the idea of what America should be, can yeah. be, you know, will be, must be, that's worth, that is what's worth fighting for. What we're doing now is we're, we're, well, we're falling they, well, short of well, because the promise it, of this country. Well, because it's nuanced, and I don't think any country ever lives up to its, its promise. You know, there's old quote from Barbara mm -hmm. Tuckman, historian. She says, every successful revolution puts on the robes of the tyrant it deposed. Our country mm -hmm. is no different. Mm -hmm. uh, we started out fighting against King George, and immediately we were we were enslaving people in our own country. We were violating the very principles that we articulated in the Declaration of Independence uh, from the very beginning. Right. Um, and I think even today, for any president to sort of articulate human rights and values, respect for, for democracy and freedom, is still a bit of a stretch for our country because of our country's history. We have a country that has been built on imperialism for the past century. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've invaded other countries and overthrown dictators and, and imposed, overthrown leaders, democratic elected leaders and, and imposed dictators on countries. Right. Uh, we are the only country that's used a nuclear weapon, an atomic bomb against the civilian population. Mm -hmm. We've killed probably more civilians in Afghanistan and Iraq than, than, than most Americans have any, any knowledge ever want to hear about. Sure. Um, and so to the rest of the world, we don't look so, so clean. We don't look like we have clean hands. Right. But here in America, a lot of people are still buying into the mythology that we do because they feel like that's the president. That because they get that narrative from the, from, the, from the government, from the military, from the leaders. There's got to be a way, I agree with you, there's got to be a way to articulate that message. That the values that America represents are what make us strong. Mm-hmm and still try to make our country a better country. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's like if you have a child who you see all this potential in your child, you don't, you know, you don't criticize the child every day of the week. You do compliment the child when the child does something good. Right. But you also have to say, you know, little buddy, <laughs> this is, these are areas that you need to come up in. And I think that when I listen to, you know, kind of, you know, summarizing our, our time here, when I look at what happened, um, you know, in the Clinton era, in the Bush era, in the Obama era, and now in the Trump era, and I'm listening to all these people who are supporters or defenders, 
uh, I'm sorry, or critics rather, of these administrations, it seems like the idea of moving the country forward as a unit um, gets lost because people have their own agendas and their own things they want to put forward. And, and I don't know, some, and I'm not a you know a sociologist, or I, so I don't know if there's some other kind of you know thing that's at work here. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't know like if there's something that happens in our you know our human psyche that makes us just kind of gives us that proclivity. But as as a person who grew up in this country, who served in its military, who's you know um, a citizen here, I do want to see the country move forward in a way that is more consistent with the ideals that I feel are America. And I don't think that, what I'm troubled by is I don't think we get there by pussyfooting around, you know, no pun intended. I don't think we we get there unless we have a real honest discourse. And the truth of the matter is those are never easy conversations. They are always very uncomfortable, but they are necessary for real measurable growth. Will it be incremental? Sure. But it must be intentional. It's not going to just happen like happenstance. And I think that's why we most people feel like we're going in a circle because we're not really saying, no, racism is a problem. Here is empirical data. This is the evidence. Let's talk about why this is. Why is it that 10% of white people are living in poverty versus 26.2% of black people? Why is it that 48.5% of six black children six and under live in poverty compared to like 14% of whites? Like those are real numbers. And so something had to happen in order for these things to be facts. And so we're not drilling down enough in my estimation on why these things exist. And until we do that, I don't think we move forward. Well, because the answer is white supremacy. The reason why there's, there, are persistent, there are persistent racial disparities in every category, in employment, health, education, housing, um, access to opportunity is because of racial, of, of white supremacy. Hmm. And uh, until we dismantle white supremacy, none of those solutions will ever be effective. This is the primary reason why I disagree with Bernie Sanders. Mm. Uh, I don't believe that simply creating economic reform is enough to to ameliorate the problems of white supremacy. And people talk about, oh, we need to have, have stronger labor unions. Well, the labor unions were racist. Sure. Back in the, in the 40s and 30s and 40s and 50s and, and in the 60s, they were racist. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were concerned about black people coming in and taking their jobs. Mm. Uh, and during those times when we had higher taxes for the wealthy, we still had racism. You know, if you think about like all the different policies of the past they want to reinstitute or even new policies, they fail to deal with the fundamental issue of racism and white supremacy in this country. Mm. And until you deal with that, I mean, you could reduce the unemployment rate, the, the overall unemployment rate to to two, three percent, one percent if you want, you're still going to have a much higher black unemployment rate. Sure. And that's something that needs to be addressed. Why do we have this disparity? It's because they were conscious decisions. They were government policies that were made at every step of the way to ensure that African-Americans, people of color, did not have the same opportunities that white people did. Do you think that's something that can be fixed? White Righted. supremacy? If it doesn't, we're going to continue having these problems for hundreds of years to come. You just sidestepped my question. Do you think it's possible? Do you think that that 
Well, let me let me, let me frame yes, it this way. Yes. So you think that we can deconstruct? I, I don't. I don't think it's gonna. Well, deconstruct. Yes, that's the easier part. The question is dismantle um, mm. and reconstruct something new. I, I think that um, I have to believe in optimism. I have to believe that these things are possible. Otherwise, what's the point? I don't believe it's going to happen overnight. It may not even happen. I don't have any reason to think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. It may not happen in this century. But I, if, if each generation of each group of people who are activists and, and, and academics and, and intellectuals and thinkers and people of good conscience and others mm-hmm. decide to do something mm-hmm. to, to at least push the agenda, then that brings us closer to what Dr. King called the beloved community. That's wonderful. This is my time, been my time with um, Keith Boykin. Before we go, can you give um, all of our listeners the titles of all of your books? Oh, Lord, I can't remember all the titles. Uh, How many books are there? I've written four books. Um, The first book is called One More River to Cross, Black and Gay in America. My second book is called Respecting the Soul. Uh, my third book was called what was my third book oh Beyond the Down Low mm-hmm. uh, my fourth book was um, for colored boys who've considered suicide when the rainbow is still not enough mm. and I have like a fifth sixth and seventh in my head <laughs> coming soon yeah exactly <laughs> thank you very much for your time Keith I appreciate your insight your expertise um, and this honest dialogue no problem thank, thank you, you guys for listening to Perspective with Ted Wynn um, until next time stay focused Um, And I guess I might as well sound as cliche as everybody else. Stay woke.